in the 1800s, uh, Napoleon and his armies, they, they um, opened up a prison that had been used in previous times uh, for the Spanish Inquisition. And in this particular uh, cell, they found a man uh, who had obviously been martyred for his faith in the gospel. The only reason they knew that he was a prisoner is there was um, chains around his ankle bones. But above this skeleton of this martyr uh, was a, a sketch of a cross that the, the prisoner had made in the side of the wall. And on the cross, above the cross, it said height. Um, below the cross was the word depth. On one side of the cross was the word width. And on the other side of the cross was the word length. This prisoner had obviously, in his very darkest time, been meditating on the love of God in Jesus Christ. And most specifically, that passage in Ephesians 3, where Paul prays that God's people would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, that's a prayer that he prays just before he calls them to walk worthy of the calling. And this man had clearly been meditating on that truth and it had emboldened him and it had provided the energy and the focus which had shaped his willingness to die for his faith. The love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, stories like that astound us, but they shouldn't. They shouldn't astound us at all because that kind of devotion is grounded as every devotion is in love. Each one of us will die for that which we love most. We need to understand that. Each one of us would do that. Conversely, why are we so unwilling to sacrifice our time, our treasures for the sake of the kingdom? Why is Bible reading so often bored, boring with God's people? Why are we not... Uh, burdened for the lost, the lost in our families, the, the lost in our neighborhood, uh, the lost in uh, our workplaces. How come we allow unrepentant pet sins into our lives? We just kind of gloss over them. How come we're not jealous for God's glory among the nations? How come we give in so easily and so often to temptation. Well, the fact is, it's because we're not stirred by divine love. It's that simple. We have bought in to an inferior kind of love. You see, our power is in our passions. Our power is in our passions. Our power is in that which we treasure and love most. Uh, Joe Husband um, you know the story. Most of you know the story. If he came into his, the kitchen and his wife, Betty, was on fire, literally, because grease had, had caught uh, onto her clothes. And, and here's, this woman was on fire in her kitchen, unconscious in the floor. And an 83-year-old man was able to do what he needed to do physically to put the fire out and get her to the hospital. And even to this day, he is astounded by what he was physically able to do in that moment. But I'm not. I'm not astounded by it at all because uh, 
I know that Joe was motivated by love. Our power is in our passions. What stirs our love uh, is what's going to direct our passions. And what stirs it? It's by experiencing love. That's what stirs our love. And our present text, outside of the text on the cross itself, perhaps is one of the greatest demonstrations of the love of God in all the scriptures. This present passage. Now, uh, we are at the moment, uh, the last night before Jesus goes to the cross. And there's going to be about four scenes that take us up to that moment in time. The first scene is here. We see his agony in a garden. All right? Next week, we're going to see an arrest. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed. And out of that betrayal will come his arrest. And then we're going to see in two weeks, Peter's denial of Jesus. Very difficult night in our Lord's life. And then we're going to see the great declaration of Jesus before his trial where he explicitly and implicitly declares himself as the Son of Man and the Son of God. Now, last time we were together in this passage, we saw in verse 37, he says, I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. We saw that this was a quotation from Isaiah 53, that fourth and great servant song. And so we saw that. And so Jesus knows he's at that point. He knows this is the moment. This is the moment where he's going to be numbered among the transgressors. And now he's taken his disciples out to pray one last time. Um, John 17, that high priestly prayer has just taken place. Luke does not record it. John records it for us. And now he's out in a garden. And the first thing we see in this passage, and it's remarkable compassion and mercy, is Jesus is exhorting his disciples. It's quite remarkable that he would do that in light of what he is facing in just the next few hours. And we see the first thing, his exhortation. Notice in verse 39. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom... To the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So Jesus and his disciples have left the upper room, and they walk about 15 minutes. It would take them about 15 minutes to get to this place, as Luke calls the Mount of Olives. Now, the other Gospels tell us that not only is it the Mount of Olives, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? And so, it, more specifically, it is the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. And Gethsemane, the, the garden there, must have been the place that Jesus went every night of Passion Week. This appears to be what he did on a regular basis. In fact, it says, as was his custom. Now, I think there is intentional irony here. He's in a garden. And I think there's irony there because our first parents... Adam and Eve began life, began history in a garden. And sin entered the world in that garden. We also know that 
the New Testament is going to end, redemptive history is going to consummate in a garden city, the New Jerusalem. Okay, And so between the original garden where sin entered and the garden city where you have sin no more, you have this man in a garden. Between that garden where man ruined things and that garden where God is going to rule over all things in a saving way, you have this representative man... In a garden. Uh, Just as in the first garden, these pivotal decisions were made that would change the course of history. In this garden, on this evening, the night before the cross, another decision is going to be made that's going to change the course of history. In fact, after he is crucified and he is raised from the grave, John 19 takes great pains to convey to us that where the tomb is, is a garden. And in that resurrection, we have the ushering, ushering in of what will be the new creation. And so that garden is symbolic, it's metaphorical. In fact, you could say this is an anti-garden in a very real sense because there is great agony that he is feeling and experiencing uh, in this garden. But note, I love this language. It says... As was his custom. This was Jesus' usual schedule. At least during Passion Week. And it's due to the fact that it was his usual schedule that makes this so unusual. Now why is that? Well, this generally is not what we do when we are facing grave danger. We're not going to remain predictable. We're not going to continue to do those things that we normally do if we know that we are in grave danger by doing them. Jesus knows that Judas knows where he is. John 18 makes that very clear. In fact, if if we were to look in John 18... Uh, it speaks to the fact that this is a garden. And it says in John eighteen two. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. He knows full well that by going to the place that is his normal place, and that Judas knows where he is, that he is going to encounter the authorities that are going to put him to death. And yet he goes, as is his custom. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded of Daniel chapter 6. And Daniel, who uh, in in that time, he'd been in Babylon for decades. And a decree was signed that anyone who did not worship King Darius would be put to death. All right? And notice what Daniel does when he hears that. In verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Or as some translations translate that, as was his custom. And so... um, What does Daniel do when he hears about the decree that anyone who worships anyone but King Darius is going to be put to death and become lion's meat? He did what he had been doing for decades. He went 
and he prayed at the window as was his custom, as he had done previously. Daniel and the one in whom he points, the man Jesus Christ, uh, shows us that they were more committed to God's glory than their own personal survival. Now, that's important when we, when we consider the prayer that Jesus is about to pray. And I believe that the Holy Spirit, by inspiring the writers to write this, want us to be drawn into that. Uh, the Holy Spirit wants us to be drawn into the heart that beat like that. A kind of heart that is more jealous for God's glory than our own personal comforts, our own personal safety. But not only was his heart drawn into the Father, his heart was drawn into you. His heart was drawn into his followers, his disciples. Notice verse 40. It says, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now it's astounding here that Jesus is carrying the weight of the world on his back. We can't even, even consider the depths of what he is experiencing at this moment. And yet he's still thinking about the disciples. And it's easy to go, well, they, he's talking about the disciples there. But this was recorded for us. He has not only his followers there in the garden in his mind. He has us in his mind as he is considering these things. Jesus knows at this moment that the wrath of the Sanhedrin is going to fall upon him in full fury. But he also knows when it happens, their wrath will not be appeased until his followers are caught themselves. That wrath would also be vented upon his followers. And the reason for this is that in that day... When rebel leaders, and that's what he was considered, a rebel leader, when rebel leaders were caught, okay, and charged and punished, um, their associates were also caught and tortured and killed. So what do you think this means for the disciples? Well, there's going to be the very real uh, potential of being tempted to forsake Jesus. So that they don't have to go through the punishment that Jesus is going to experience. I mean, we can't even envision that in America. We live in Disney World. But there are people in the world that to become a Christian, it means a death sentence. We know that girl. Uh, Harvey made me aware of this girl uh, last week uh, who, uh, who is in the Sudan. And she is facing death by the government because she is a convert to Jesus Christ. Um, we're, we're fearful of having people raise their eyebrows at us, aren't we? And the reason this text is here is because Jesus wants to show us and teach us how to overcome the temptation of forsaking him when it gets really difficult. It's one of the real reasons this text is here. Of course, the objection might be... Um, uh, it, this can't happen because once you become a believer, you stay a believer. And I believe that the Bible teaches uh, uh, God's preserving grace. I believe that when a person is saved, um, they remain saved because we are kept by the power of God through faith. 
Okay? And so faith is the instrument, but God, the omnipotent God, keeps us. And so I believe that you cannot lose your salvation. Now, I do believe there are many who've made professions of faith. And then in time, it shows that what they had was not a regenerate faith. But I believe that God uses means. And certainly Jesus believed that as well. And Jesus knows that this persevering faith is going to be brought about by means. And one of the central means is prayer. And we saw last time, or we saw a few weeks ago, that... Centrally, it's Jesus' prayer that keeps us persevering. He is our advocate to the Father. He intercedes for us. And as he told Peter, as he prayed for Peter, he says, I have prayed for you so that when you return, you will strengthen your brothers. We have an advocate to the Father, and the Father always hears the prayer of this advocate. In fact, just minutes before this takes place, In John 17, again, Luke does not record this, but John 17, here's what Jesus prays. He says, I am not praying for the world. In other words, he's not praying for unbelievers here. He says, I am praying for those whom you have given me. Now, that's another sermon for another day, but we have to take that at face value. I am praying for those you have given me, for they are yours. And here's what he says. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. What do you think that means? That means I am praying that you keep them. You keep them faithful. You keep them saved. He goes on and prays, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God always answers the prayer of the Son. And this prayer is that He would sanctify those who are His. And so we have this prayer. This prayer that Jesus prays, and we know that He ever lives, He's able to save to the utmost those um, who are saved by faith because He ever lives to make intercession for us. And so the, the ground of our salvation in a very real sense is the intercessory ministry of Jesus. But there's also our responsibility. And He says back in Luke 22, He says, Pray, pray, That you may not enter into temptation. Your life as a believer should be characterized and marked by prayer. It's the praying life. He is praying. He is telling us here. He is telling these disciples to pray so you will not enter temptation. Now what is this temptation? Well, as we saw in uh, that text we read earlier uh, with Scott. The Sermon on the Mount, and that prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we have Luke 11, the shortened version of that. The last part of that prayer is, Father, lead us not into temptation. It's the same word. And that word can be translated temptations or trials. But what we saw when we looked at that text is essentially this. Lead us not into temptation to do anything that would eclipse your glory. Lead us not into temptation so that we would fail to hallow your name. That prayer begins with that request. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So pray that you would not be tempted to do anything that would eclipse the glory of God and hamper, if we could actually hamper that in the human uh, realm, the kingdom of God coming in our world. And so that's the idea here, 
Jesus recognizes that all hell is about to break loose on these disciples. And the fact is, it's breaking loose on us. It may not be persecution. In our world, it's worldliness. It's materialism. It's entertainment. It's all of these things that we experience in Disney World that compete with our loyalty to God. Things that crowd out your prayer, ironically. Things that cried out, cry out, uh, cr- crowd out your, uh, your spiritual disciplines. All of these things are in mind. And no one hallowed the name of the Father more than the Lord Jesus Christ, which, praise God, is to our benefit because He is our representative. And the more He agonizes in this uh, particular garden, we see the more He prays. In fact, that brings us to his example. We've seen his exhortation to pray. And now we're going to see his example for us. Notice in verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven. Angels are ministering spirits. I believe each one of us have angels that minister to us. They're not to be worshipped. We have this new age mysticism in our world. But uh, angels are just servants. They're created beings. It's very likely that they were created somewhere between Genesis 1 verse 31 and Genesis 3 verse 1. Genesis 1 uh, 31 is where God created all things good, including the angelic realm. Genesis 3, 1, you have this serpent who comes into the garden. And so somewhere between Genesis 1, 31 and Genesis 3, verse 1, it appears that you have the fall of the angels. They were created just like we are. They are not to be worshipped. But they minister to us. And here you have this angel who is ministering to Jesus. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, this is a very tough text. Because here, for the first time, we see Jesus' human nature recoiling at the thought of dying. He's been predicting it. He's been speaking about His death all the way since chapter 9. And here we have Him recoiling. And here we get in, really, we get a glimpse into the deep mysteries of the incarnation. What we call hypostatic union. Where you have the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus united in one person. This is a great mystery. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Even today and forever. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, before Christmas, before the incarnation, he was fully God, but not a man. When he came to earth, virgin conceived, uh, the divine nature put on a human nature. So you have a fully God, fully man in one person in Jesus. This also means that Jesus had both a human will and a divine will. Two wills, okay? And that has been the orthodox teaching of the church 
at least officially so, since 680 A.D. and the Third Council of Constantinople. All right? So that is official Orthodox teaching that Jesus has two wills, a, a human will and a divine will. And with regard to his divine uh, will, uh, he had no other will than that of the Father because he and the Father are one. Okay? And yet, with regard to his human will, with regard to his human nature, Jesus is making a distinction. Now, it's not a contradiction or a conflict, just a distinction. A distinction between his human will and that of the Father. Okay? It's very clear there when he says, uh, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so, as a human... He had this instinct to preserve his life. Why? Because death is an enemy. Death is an alien invader. Okay? And so as a human, he has this instinct to keep his life. And yet, he is willing to concede. Uh, with regard to his divine nature, he is one. There is unity. With regard to his human nature, there is differentiation. Yet not my will, but your will be done. In the wilderness, in Luke chapter 4, we saw this many, many years ago at this point. Um, he was tempted in his human nature um, to seize the crown without suffering a cross. Okay? We saw that in chapter 4. So that has been a temptation. Now he is struggling with the same question. It's a, it's a beleaguering question. Was there another way to save? Is there another way to save except for the cross? And this text shares with us that no, there is no other way to be saved. God did not have to save us. And in that case, that means the cross wasn't necessary. The cross wasn't necessary because God didn't have to save. But once God determined to save sinful humanity, the cross was the only way. The only way. Now keep in mind, Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's Revelation chapter 13. Before the creation of the world, God ordained, God, Acts 4, predestined the Son of God to be slain on a Roman cross. The, the scripture is very clear on that. In other words, the cross is not plan A or plan B because plan A did not work. It's not a contingency plan. The cross is plan A. In that sense, you could say the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is the purpose for creation. So that in all things, he may have the preeminency. And yet here, though he knows he was destined to drink the cup, he prays to the Father, if you're willing... Remove this cup, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Now, I think Jesus is also teaching us something about prayer here. Uh, in this particular passage, he is teaching us uh, something about prayer. We can bring our desires to the Father, okay? And yet, at the end of the day, we submit our desires to the will of God. This also teaches us something about human desires. Now, some desires we have are just outright sinful desires. Okay? You, if you desire something illicit, something that is clearly in 
contradiction to the will and the word, the law of God, that's a sinful desire, okay? You know what those things are. But there are some things we can desire that are not sinful in themselves, but they may not be the Father's will for your life. It's not wrong to desire them, but recognize it may not be God's will for your life. We see this here in this passage. Now, even those good desires can become sinful desires if they begin to control us. Now, what do I mean by controlling desire? An inordinate desire. So you desire something. Let's say you're single and you desire to be married. That's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. But all of a sudden, you find yourself bitter. You find yourself jealous at others who are getting married. You find yourself discontent. Those are symptoms that this good desire has become an ultimate desire in your life. It's controlling you. You know what you have in your life? You have an idol. A false god. You're looking to marriage to fulfill you in a way only God can fulfill you. Okay? So Jesus has this desire. Humanly speaking, he desires another way. And yet we know it's not a controlling desire. In fact, Hebrews 5, 7, speaking about Jesus' prayer life, says he was heard because of his reverence. He was reverentially submitting his desires and his will to the Father's will. But don't lose sight of the fact that he is in agony. He is in utter agony. And what was it about this situation that caused Jesus so much agony? That's the word that's used. He was in agony. There have been so many martyrs. There have been so many brave martyrs who seem to have endured death for God's sake, for the kingdom's sake, in a much more heroic way than what we see here. What is causing Jesus so much agony here? Including that young lady I spoke of from the Sudan who is waiting to be crucified or put to death because of her commitment to Jesus. This death was unique. This isn't just Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus, the next day, in just a few hours, is going to bear the sin of every single believer who had lived up to that day, who was presently living, or who would ever live. Jesus was going to bear their sin on the cross. He was going to propitiate, satisfy the wrath of God for their sin. And be punished for them. As Richard Baxter asserts, Jesus' agony was not from the fear of death, but from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin, which he, as our sacrifice, was to bear. Now keep in mind, in this... He would be separated from the Father. There is something mysterious about this, but there is a sense in which He is going to be forsaken by the Father. There will be a separation, the first separation in all eternity because of the wrath He would experience. It goes beyond human language. It goes beyond anything our minds can conceive. All I can do is give you a poor semblance of what is taking place here. All I can do is take you to the garden. And let you behold what is happening here. 
He's going to be separated from the Father. And he would cry out the next day, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a forsakenness that he knows he's going to experience. And we see this with the language of the cup. He says, if you're willing, take this cup from me. The cup, with few exceptions in the Old Testament, referred to God's wrath. To drink of the cup was to experience God's wrath. Let me give you a couple of examples. There are numerous examples. You could do a word study on that and see it for yourself. Psalm 11, verse 6, Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And then you've got Israel who was suffering for their sins. Isaiah says in chapter 51, You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. And so this agony is due to the fact that Jesus would be forsaken by the Father as He propitiated, He satisfied God's wrath on sin. And His willingness to do this To go to the cross was an act of supreme sacrifice. It was an act of love. It's an act of love. And it's utterly impossible for us to climb the heights, or better said, to plumb the depths of what he is experiencing. It's utterly impossible. But I love what Donald McLeod says, the great theologian. He wrote a book called The Person of Christ. If you want to look into more about the person of Jesus. It's a wonderful book. He says, The wonder of the love of Christ for His people is not that for their sake He faced death without fear, but that for their sake He faced it terrified. Terrified by what He knew. Terrified by what He did not know. He took damnation lovingly. And perhaps that's the most important reason the Holy Spirit includes this account in our Bibles. If I'm trying to uh, present Jesus as the Messiah, and I've got uh, an agenda that's not inspired of God, I'm not going to speak about this. This speaks to the veracity and the trustworthiness of the Scripture, that we would look into the heart of Jesus and see His terror, the agony He is experiencing as He knows what He's going to endure. And it's not so that we can feel sorry for Jesus. That is is not why this text is here. It's so that we can begin just just to have a thimble full of grasp of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So that we can be stirred in our affections. You see, if you're a repentant believer, that is, you've, you've repented of your sins and you live a life of repentance. You sin every day. And so your life is characterized by repentance. But you're, you're a repentant believer. You've trusted in Jesus. You recognize, I don't care how much I go to church or how, how often I read my Bible, the only thing that's going to allow me to stand before God the Father is the finished work of Jesus, who lived the life I could not live, who died the death that I deserve. If you're a repentant believer, you should read this and realize that you will never have to suffer. What Jesus is suffering here in the garden, you'll never have to suffer what he is going to experience the next day at Calvary because he suffered it for you. 
He suffered as your substitute. And if you're not a believer, the agony that he's experiencing here is due to the fact that he knows he's going to bear the wrath of God. And his agony should drive you to Jesus in repentance and faith, recognizing if I don't take Jesus, God's provision for my sin, I'm going to have to experience this agony for all eternity. That is the message to you. This text is crucial to both the believer and the unbeliever. Here we have his agony. Notice again, verse 44, being in, in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Notice, it says like grapes, uh, great drops of blood. It may indicate that his, his sweat is just falling down like um, clots of blood. But there is, and Jeff would know this better, a rare physical condition. Uh, called hematidrosis. Thank you. I, I knew if I didn't pronounce that correctly that you would completely miss the point. Um, <laughs> but under severe strain, in this rare condition, tiny blood vessels rupture in the sweat glands and produce a mixture of sweat... And blood. Now, it's not clear if this is the case, if this is what's happening here, but that's not what's important. One thing is for sure, he's in agony. He is agonizing. And he is teaching us that in this agony, what we're to do. It says he prayed. I mean, that's remarkable. Look at verse 44. He prayed more earnestly. Now, none of us will experience in this life, perhaps what he is experiencing here. This transcends our experience because he is, a, he is the Son of God who's going to take the wrath of, uh, you know, a sinful humanity. But perhaps some of you here today are really struggling. Perhaps you are agonizing over something, a lost, a lost son or a daughter, a health situation. Something grieves you, perhaps. And... We see in Jesus' example what we're to do. We're to pray more earnestly. We find our hope, we find our help, we find our grace in this glorious means where we come to the Father. We come to Him through the Son. He prays more earnestly. And this is obviously something that needs to be taught because if we close out this text, notice in 45 and 46, and when He rose from prayer... He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They're experiencing their own agony. It's not what he's experiencing, but they have a sorrow. Maybe you've had that kind of depression and sorrow that just makes you want to sleep all the time. That's what they're experiencing because they know what their, their master, their teacher is going to endure. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. Here the Messiah is on the fringe of the greatest sacrifice in the history of the world. Uh, for people like these guys, no less. And what do they do? They sleep. They can't even stay alert. Now remember, Luke began this passage in verse 40 by exhorting them to pray so that they would not enter into temptation. And then he closes it here with an exhortation to pray. That kind of conveys the significance and the importance of this passage. 
And right between those two exhortations, we have Jesus doing just that. He is praying so that he would not enter into the temptation of turning away from his mission, his vocation, to down the cross for sinners. And so Jesus' agony in Gethsemane, the garden, demonstrates his love for us in two ways as we close. One, the fact that he exhorts us and he exemplifies to us how to persevere in the midst of temptation. And you will be tempted. You will be tried. Those temptations are going to be of of the nature that will um, essentially tempt you to eclipse the glory of God in your life. Okay? Sin is devastating in the life of a believer. Lead us not into temptation. He exemplifies that. And secondly, we see the agony he went through to save us. And it's in comprehending that love that stirs us. The fact that you're bored in your walk, the fact that you're not burdened for the lost, the fact that you have pet sins in your life that you will not repent of is because you've gotten over the love of God in Jesus Christ. You've become bored with the gospel. And Luke, by the Holy Spirit, has taken us into the very heart of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the man, the representative for sinners. And though the disciples are going to fail here, they're going to get it. They're going to get it soon. And that's what the book of Acts is about. These men are transformed from the inside out. They go from sleeping to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of prison in the face of beatings, in the place place of martyrdom, death itself, because they could not keep quiet about the one who demonstrated his love so supremely through his dying for them and being raised from the grave so that they could have pardon, new life, the forgiveness of sins. That's why this text is here. Let's pray. Father God.